Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. She called out to Jim and said, Jim, can you check in on Alicia? He went in, pulled the covers back and then, and then yelled for... Nancy's boyfriend to come in and um, just by the tone of how they were talking and their reaction, uh, Nancy knew something was awfully wrong. We start this episode of Crimes NZ with the warning it won't be suitable for young listeners and if you're not in the right spot yourself right now, maybe it's not the one for you. I'm Jesse Mulligan, and in Crimes NZ, we speak to people connected in some way or other with New Zealand's most serious crimes. And this episode goes back to August 16th, 1980, the day six-year-old Alicia O'Reilly was found dead in her bed in the room she shared with her eight-year-old sister. New Zealand Herald investigative reporter Jared Savage has written a special report on the case which is still unsolved. Yeah, it's pretty rough. It's a very grim, brutal case, and it's you know it's one that's um, I know it's you know affected some really senior police officers as well. So uh, yeah, not not a pleasant story to to write uh, or to read, really. Okay, well let's go through what we know happened on that night, August fifteenth, nineteen eighty. So it was a Friday night, um, Alicia six years old. She lived in Canal Road in Avondale, so sort of, you know, on the the western edge of the city, uh, a blue-collar sort of suburb. Uh, she's there with her mother, uh, Nancy, uh, and her older sister, Juliet, who was, who was eight. So um, very, if I can just sort of describe a, a run-down sort of council-owned house, so it didn't have a lot of money. Nancy was a single mum. She had a boarder living with her. Um, that night a storm was sort of coming into Auckland, heavy rain, and the girls had dinner with with, um, with their mum, Chow Main, um, and then watched Dukes of Hazard, which was a TV show at the time. Yeah, I remember. I remember that on a Friday night. Yeah, went to, went to bed, and um, in the morning, uh, so Alicia was quite a full-on, energetic child. Uh, Juliet was a more sort of serious, withdrawn one, and uh, Nancy woke up in the morning, went out to have breakfast, saw Juliet there in the lounge playing with her dolls uh, in front of the fire, said, where's your sister? Um, and Juliet said, oh, she's still in bed. Uh, and Nancy sort of breathed a sigh of relief, really, to, to think, you know, she could have a bit of a, a cup of tea and a line and, and read the paper, um, went back to her room, and um, she could see across the hall was uh, uh, Alicia's bed, and she could see Alicia, the lump of her body, under the bedspread, and she thought, okay, that's all good. Um, it came to the point where it was like, okay, you know, she's having a good sleep in here, try to, you know, see what's going on. Um, a friend who had come back to the house to pick up some tobacco was, you know, in the house, walking past on his way out. She called out to Jim and said, Jim, can you check in on Alicia? He went in, pulled the covers back, and then, and then yelled for... Um, Nancy's boyfriend to come in, said Nigel come in here and um, just by the tone of 
how they were talking and their reaction, uh, Nancy knew something was awfully wrong. Uh, she rushed in to find uh, Alicia under the bed cover, um, you know, purple, swollen face, um, a lot of blood. And um, it's at that point that she sort of freaked out. You know, obviously something's horribly wrong. Um, uh, Alicia had a habit of getting into um, pills and medicine, so she, so they had to hold, you know, as every parent does, they put it up higher, in, you know, in a kitchen cupboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she ran into the kitchen to check um, if she, you know, got got into the medicines into the cupboard up there. She hadn't; nothing had been touched. Um, came back, and you know, just uh, obviously a hysterical sort of reaction screaming um, and then you know police were called ambulances came uh, and nothing could be done for Alicia um, it wasn't until that Nancy was taken to the police station that she was told that her daughter had been brutally raped and murdered uh, in her own bedroom and um, yeah life's never been the same for her ever since and here we are 40 years later yeah horrific and her sister was in the bed uh, it- in a bed in the same room, and apparently, uh, or maybe we'll come back to this, but but certainly at the time it appeared as though she hadn't um, seen or, or heard anything. Yeah, Nancy, her mother, is of the belief that Juliet did see something and kind of suppressed it, perhaps, uh, and this, you know, sort of pushed into the deep recesses of her, her mind, I suppose, uh, and that's something that the police... Considered, I think at the time then, I mean, they probably wouldn't now, but I think at the time then they considered doing like, you know, hypnotherapy perhaps to put, you know, perhaps tease out some of the, you know, if, if there were any repressed memories there. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly Nancy believes that her sister Juliet was, was never the same after um, after Alicia's death and whether or not she heard or saw anything, um, uh, yeah, I guess we'll never know now. Yeah. So... Were there any clues left behind? Yeah, there, there was. Um, so there was fingerprints, fingerprints, and a, a partial palm print was was left behind. This was matched, or sorry, compared to two hundred thousand uh, print sets that the police had on their database. I mean, bear in mind this is in the eighties; it wasn't a digital database. We, you know, it's like on TV where everything flashes by and yeah. they magically match. You're going. You know, officers and staff are going through um, one by one to, to physically physically look at them and compare them. Um, no match. Um, there was also um, physical bodily fluid evidence found there, so uh, which you know um, led the police to believe that you know she'd been raped. Um, these, and we'll come back to this, I guess, but these days that would obviously provide very powerful DNA evidence. Um, wasn't available to the investigative team back in the uh, back in 1980. They also found some pubic hairs, which were sent away for testing in Australia. I forget the exact technical term for the test that they do, but uh, they analysed the hair, and from that, the scientists were able to determine uh, the blood type, uh, the blood type of the offender. They were also able to from that, from the hairs, they're able to say, well, it was likely that the offender was either Maori or of a Pacific Island uh, descent. The hairs also revealed, the testing also revealed something quite interesting, that they had, um, the strands of hair were contaminated with, you know, five elements from the periodic table, um, cobalt and chromium, barium, iron and antimony was the fifth one. 
that evidence led them to believe um, it's the sort of evidence which the inference is, is that the person was contaminated working in the paint factory or a similar sort of industrial sort of factory where you'd come into contact with paints and clay and, and things like that. Um, you know, it, it, it's a circumstantial piece of evidence. Uh, and also there were eyewitness accounts of a person seen in Canal Road um, sort of about uh, 1.8 metres tall, strongly built, uh, wearing an army-style jacket and dark trousers and boots, potentially of, of Māori or, or Pacific um, heritage as well. So there, there were clues there, but also, um, you know, there's no eyewitness accounts or, the, you know, nothing really, really strong. It's more circumstantial bits of evidence which the police can then use to eliminate um, potential suspects. At the time... What approach did the detectives take? Very much what I would call an old school sort of police style, um, which was, you know, common to the time in the early 80s. So uh, a lot of the things that we take for granted these days, so um, cell phone tracking, uh, GPS, um, security cameras, um, FPOS and credit card transactions, those are bits of evidence now that the police can use to... um, essentially eliminates a suspect from, from the investigation. So if, if you or I were interviewed as part of this investigation, they would say, well, where were you on the 15th and 16th of August um, 1980? And we would say, well, we're at the pub or we're with our kids or I was at work. And these days they'd be able to, you know, they'd be able to access your phone and, and work out, well, were you where you said you were? So those digital records were these days so useful for either disproving or corroborating Mm. someone's version of events. In those days, none of those things really existed. And so you were relying, detectives were relying on interviewing people, but also interviewing people who could potentially corroborate their version of events. And, you know, we would call it an alibi in in TV shows. So they're really relying on people corroborating someone else's version of events. um, And seeing if they, if they match up. Um, and they had about 600 persons of interest at the time, so a huge amount of work getting around those people and also interviewing people who can back up where they, where they said that they were at the time and yeah. eliminate them from the, from the investigation pool. So very time-intensive, um, time very resource-intensive, and it also relies on people being honest and it also relies on... Uh, people's recollection, even if they're, an, you know, you can have an honest witness who is also mistaken. So, um, you know, there, there's a there's a pool of suspects. I think in the sort of in the ten to twenty number of range where they're not entirely convinced by their version of events, or they're, they're unable to be eliminated in terms of they don't necessarily believe the alibis that have been given by other people to back up their version of events. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. There were a couple of men who stayed the night at the house that night. Were they uh, ever suspects? No, well, I'm sure they would have been in the initial poll. I mean, you'd, you'd be mad not to um, to look at them, but they were they have been eliminated as the offender. You know, I think, and there will be things in regards to blood type and, and fingerprints and things like that, which would have been able to eliminate them. So this is a, a home invasion. Um, for lack of a better word, um, a, a stranger or, or some, certainly someone that doesn't live in the house who has entered the house for the for the purpose of committing this crime. There was a 23-year-old man who lived nearby. Um, can you tell us about him? Yeah, so there was a 23-year-old man who lived nearby. He had the he'd suffered a brain injury as a young boy, so um, he had a mental age of around 
you know, seven or eight, a much younger, you know, a much younger boy. Um, but he came into the picture because he sort of described a, a vivid dream um, to the police in which, you know, he described aspects of, of the crime um, against Alicia, but there were other bits which didn't match up. Um, so the police, he was a prime suspect for, for a period of time, but, um, you know, basically fully cooperated with the police, you know, fingerprints, Blood samples, um, semen samples—you know the whole the whole sort of works really—and um, couldn't match up with with the evidence that they did at hand. So I'm not sure whether he has um, been eliminated completely from the from the inquiry, um, but certainly no arrest was ever ever made, yeah. and um, they couldn't push it any further at the time. So this was 40 years ago, and. Obviously, the police didn't have any luck catching their killer. Were there any breakthroughs in subsequent years? They, around the, the year of the 2000, there had been a breakthrough in another case which sort of reignited uh, interest, and that was the Jules Mekas. He was arrested um, for the murder of Theresa Cormack in the 80s, and that was a breakthrough made through DNA. Now, that sort of reignited a lot of interest within the police at using DNA as a tool to potentially solve other cold cases and uh, Alicia O'Reilly being one of them. However, DNA didn't exist as an investigative tool in the 1980 when this occurred. I think it came, possibly came through in the late 80s, but by that point, the DNA samples or the, sam- the physical samples had been destroyed. Um, no one's entirely sure why. I think the, the police and, and the scientists were sort of pointing the finger at each other, but um, certainly with hindsight, that would seem to be a, a pretty big mistake. Um, so that, that gave some hope to the investigators sort of in the early 2000s, uh, and certainly to Alicia's mother, uh, Nancy, but um, there's been no real big big break um, since then. Um, you know, police can't keep pouring resources into a case going nowhere. Mm. Uh, and this brings us up to basically this point the last year where uh, a detective who was a, a young detective at the time, a trainee detective in 1980, this is a, a case uh, he was combing through the backyard in charge of securing the scene and, and looking through the lawn for evidence. It's to Orthop Smith. Um, he's a detective inspector now, so he's quite senior. It's a case that stuck with him, and he's been working away in the background for a long time, um, maintaining close contact with, with Nancy O'Reilly, Alicia's mother, and... Um, They've got to the point now where he was able to basically say, well, look, we need to have another really good look at this. Some new evidence has come to light. Um, can't really talk about it publicly because that could jeopardise the case in terms of tipping off the killer to, mm. to you know, to evidence. But, um, yeah, they've got to the point now where they're reinvestigating it um, and, and re basically a new team has been put together to go over all the evidence with fresh eyes to, to see if they can piece the puzzle together. Wow. Uh, and what have they told you you can say publicly? Well, I mean, I, I could say it publicly. I, I sort of choose choose not to. Um, I don't want to be the one responsible no. for stuffing up a 40-year-old cold case, but um, <laughs> I, it is, I can't really say w- what it is because um, it's quite it's quite specific. But um, well, uh, I've know. seen, I don't think I'm breaking any confidences here, that the, um, the, the police are asking people who provided an alibi at the time to reconsider oh, something along those lines? Yeah, so, and that comes back to that point we were talking about before where, um, you know, so much of their original investigation relied on 
you know, people giving alibis to others. So one of the key things that Stu Walsall-Smith is saying is like, look, if you gave an alibi for someone back in 1980 where you're not comfortable with what you said uh, or you could be mistaken or, you, you know, you've outright lied, um, please come forward and tell us. The police are not interested in persecuting or prosecuting anyone for giving false evidence at the time. Their, their sole goal is to solve this case. And so they basically say, look, come forward, tell us anything. You know, if, if you have any sort of doubt, it'll come forward and tell us. And um, that could provide the, the missing piece of the puzzle there. And, and what Stu sort of told me and, and what is quite common uh, in a lot of these sort of cold cases or where, where arrests are made, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, is that allegiances changed. So back in 1980, you know, hypothetically speaking, uh, someone could have given an alibi to protect a friend or to protect a partner or out of fear, you know, they might have just said what needed to be said without knowing what, what they were doing. And um, But times change and 20, 30, 40 years on, um, those allegiances might have waned, the loyalty might no longer be there, they might have the courage to stand up and actually say, you know, I didn't tell the truth back in 1980. So, yeah, that's very much part of what the the police are hoping to do in this in this new review. Yeah, you've talked to Alicia's mother. Yes, yep, um, Nancy. Yeah, I've spent quite a bit of time with her. Um, you know, she's quite a remarkable woman, really. Yeah, she's had a tough life. It almost seems too much to go into this, but. Um she lost, well, the daughter who was in the room when the murder happened has died, right? That's right. So Juliet was eight when, when Alicia was murdered. Um, about seven years later, when she was 15, uh, Nancy and Juliet were driving in a car in Auckland uh, and they were struck by another car, a, a drunk driver behind the wheel of the other car, and that, uh, that killed Juliet. She was only 15 at the time. And um, obviously, you know, coming on the back of, you know, to have one daughter taken in such tragic circumstances is bad enough. And then to have that on top of it, you know, I think it would break a lot of people. Um, and, but Nancy told me quite an amazing story about how, so obviously the young man, the drunk driver was, was charged, and um, but she went and met with him in like a restorative justice type meeting ahead of the sentencing, and she forgave him and hugged him and, um, you know, just that sort of power of, of forgiveness really is quite an amazing story for her to, to tell and, um, you know, she's had other setbacks along the way after that. She had, um, you know, she had entered a new relationship and then one of the, their daughter died in, in labour basically so she had to bury three three daughters um, and now she's got two healthy adult sons now, I might add, but, um, yeah, to go through three deaths like that. She, I mean, she, the way that she said it to me was she felt like she was a jinx. Um, you know, she had people coming to her funerals uh, of the daughters and, you know, she'd be apologising, you know, um, because, you know, here she was again having to invite people to, um, to a funeral. So, yeah, she's had a hell of a, a, hell of a life and uh, is currently battling leukaemia, but she's very resilient and um, doesn't harbour resentment and is, um, yeah, and, and in terms of finding justice for Alicia, um, you know, she she's not looking for a criminal trial or, or retribution or anything like that. She does, she just wants some answers, really, to something that's sort of cast a shadow of her for, for 40 years. So what are the chances, Jared, of finding the killer now? Oh, 
I don't I don't know because I don't know enough. I'm not privy to all the inner workings of the investigation, obviously. But um, look, I you know there's a few cold cases in New Zealand. Um, the very fact that the police have been convinced uh, when I say the police, I mean you know the hierarchy, the bosses have been convinced that you know they should throw some time and effort and resources at this case. You know, there's a lot of other things that they could be investigating right now. We all know that there's, you know, plenty of things going on. But the very fact that they are investigating and spending time leads me to think that, you know, they're confident of potentially getting a result here. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can catch more of me Monday to Friday hosting RNZ's Afternoon Show and you can find more episodes of Crimes NZ on the RNZ podcast page. It's also on Apple, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Don't forget to follow the series and if you enjoyed it, give it a rating so others can find it too. If you like this one, you might also enjoy Eyewitness. It's not true crime, but it is real-life accounts of major milestones in New Zealand history. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.